0: This is the In Focus podcast from The Hindu. Hello, and welcome to The Hindu's In Focus podcast. This is K. Bharat Kumar. The technology services industry has had a tremendous run these past couple of years. Customers' acceptance of technology and services from remote likely spurred the trend. In tandem, as demand from customers rose, the war for talent too intensified. The industry has gone through these cycles multiple times over the years. To help us understand if this time it's any different, and if leaders in the industry can learn from past experience, we have with us today Francisco De Souza, co-founder and managing partner at Recognize, a growth fund. Frank was formerly vice chairman of IT services firm Cognizant. Welcome, Frank. Lovely to have you with us, as always.
1: Thanks, it's Great to be with you.
0: So. You know, like we've discussed this a few times over the last couple of decades, the IT industry typically goes through cycles of attrition, high talent demand versus attrition, and then a cooling off phase. If this is accurate, in the current instance of high manpower demand, is it any different from what you've seen earlier in your days as CEO and vice chairman of Cognizant?
1: Bharat, thanks for having me on, on this podcast. And I think um, on a very timely and, and relevant topic. You know, in short, I think that actually this cycle is fundamentally different from past cycles. And I think while there may be on the surface some similarities, I would say that the playbook on attrition and retention, the playbook of the past is not necessarily going to work going forward. And and let me explain a little bit more about what I mean. I think first I would say that if if you look at the situation today, the conventional wisdom about the current levels of attrition in the industry is that we had a really a covid induced shock to demand because covid accelerated digital transformation around the world we had to transact more online we shopped more online we banked more online we even did more of our healthcare online as a result of covid so there was a an increase and an acceleration in demand and at the same time At least early in the pandemic, during the time of uh, great uncertainty, firms in the industry pulled back on supply because the future was was relatively uncertain. And so they scaled back hiring plans and so on. So the conventional wisdom in the industry is that this supply demand imbalance, where demand increased perhaps unexpectedly quickly and supply contracted or maybe not contracted, but didn't grow as fast. Has led to this wage imbalance, or rather wage inflation, which is leading then to high levels of attrition. But I think that that view, while obviously correct at the surface, tends to oversimplify things, and I think fails to recognize some important trends. The first is that you know there are very clear signs that there seems to be a fundamental frustration in the relationship between employees and employers that goes beyond compensation. You know, so for example, I saw some research that was done by Aon India that as many as 90% of employees that resigned in recent times from companies were offered extremely lucrative counteroffers by their existing employers, but only 35% of those employees chose to stay back. So, so, what happened to the rest of them? Why did they still move on despite being offered you know b- b- beside, uh, despite compensation being essentially neutralized as a reason to move? there's so something else going on here, and I think that that something else is really important because to me it's, because it's that if you look at the technology services industry globally, but you know in the India context, which is the context of our conversation the it's important to understand that over the last 40 years or so that the nature of work that technology services firms are doing uh, has changed fundamentally because the, nat- the, the role of technology has changed. So you had, you know, a few decades ago, technology was a back office enabler for most businesses, and therefore the work of an IT services business was, was very algorithmic, you know. It was very procedural and our approach to that work was very algorithmic and very procedural we wrote functional designs we wrote technical designs we wrote code we did unit testing we had these quality systems where checkers checked the work that people did and then there were checkers that checked the work of the checkers but you know today as technology becomes a much more fundamental enabler of businesses and it's the it is the product of most businesses the work of an it services business is becoming much more creative, much more intrinsically interesting. And therefore, the work is much more heuristic and much less algorithmic. And that means how you configure the workplace, the, how you configure your culture, how you attract, retain, motivate people is fundamentally different. And organizational cultures that were built in the world where work was more algorithmic, I didn't need to evolve dramatically for the world where work, where work is much more creative. And I think this mismatch of culture between the, the work of today and the work of the past is something really to, to keep in mind. And I think is, is one of the fundamental drivers of attrition that we see today.
0: That's interesting, Frank, because you know you mentioned about the work of yesterday and the work of today. And while you were at cognizant, I think some very important um, aspect that you were able to focus on was the future of work. And I still distinctly remember people who ran that unit for you talking about how Sunday evenings was such a, an enriching experience for the average 25, 27-year-old, which is all his gadgets. And then he walks into office on a Monday morning, and he sees some really legacy stuff. So with that as a context, so is there something at all that CXOs of today in the tech services industry can learn from the past, or they just have to innovate and you know play it by the ear as they go along? I get what you're saying as to how they have to be innovative and creative. But there's nothing for them to look back upon, right? Because in a whole new dimension is what I take away from what you said. I mean, I think that
1: in general, Bharat. By the way, before I answer your question directly, I think it's also worth remembering that the the on this issue that that employees today, uh, again, particularly in the Indian context, have far more choices than they've had at any other time in the in the history of this industry you know a decade ago uh, even a decade ago the it services firms really dominated technology hiring in in the country and today the country has an incredibly rich ecosystem of saas companies other technology startups unicorns india has the third largest i think uh, ecosystem of saas companies if i'm not mistaken and so it's not and it's not just saas companies it's you know every company is now a software company so the banks the insurance companies the retailers they're all vying for the same tech talent so employees have a lot more choices and the you know it's quite likely I would say that employees who leave the traditional IT services industry or technology services industry may may not ever come back to the industry so there's also that that dynamic playing into attrition but to to your specific question you know I always talk about this in this context which is in these kinds of in the in the in the broad market of talent fly and demand if you're a CXO you can't really control the macro environment, right? That's the supply demand is gonna be whatever it is, but you can absolutely control the micro, what happens inside the four walls of your company, your organization. And I think that's the thing to focus on is that if you look, look at the industry, there are clearly examples of firms that are able to systemically manage and maintain their attrition rates at rates that are lower than industry average for long sustained periods of time. And so you have to say, well, how, what are they doing? What's, what's going on there? Because I think it's too easy to just say, well, you know, the industry has got high levels of attrition, therefore, I, I have high levels of attrition. And, you know, I think you really have to question that jump, because I think that while you can absolutely buck the trend, and you buck the trend by creating a culture and a workplace and an environment uh, that people seek out, that people self-select into, and people say, I want to come here, I want I want to work here because I can do my best work here. Because I, you know, this is a place that gives me a great culture. This is a place which gives me great learning opportunities. This is a place that that, uh, cares about me and develops my career where there's a sense of purpose, where I have autonomy to do the work that I like to do, where I have empowerment, where I can build my craft, and that there's a broad sense of purpose. And so these, these elements, you know, autonomy, empowerment, sense of purpose a real commitment to developing people over long periods of time, I think those things still really matter. And those are very much in the control of, of CXO. And so I think at times like this, you've got to double down on, on culture and work in you know, kind of the, the overall environment in the place. And I think you can absolutely
0: buck the trend. So, you know, years ago when... You know, the ability to have talent come straight from college, but not necessarily start billing billing, uh, right away was seen in a way, in a manner of speaking, as an indirect tax on companies, IT services companies, India heritage companies. So it really took three months, four months to train them and another additional three months before they're billable. And I remember in those days, 2005, 2008 time frame, Nascom actually said, you know, we're trying our best to ensure we work with universities on curricula, but it takes such a time, uh, such a length of time to change syllabus. So they were trying to work around this problem saying These are addendum, the courses addendum to universities. So trying to make people coming out of graduation courses sort of industry ready. Has that changed at all in what you've seen in the past decade? Uh, you know, is it easier to engage with universities First, of, first off, with the newer technologies coming in, is there a need to change curriculum? Have universities become more accepting of very quick turnarounds in curricular? Uh, just wanted your views on that.
1: Yeah, look, I think
0: it's a complicated
1: question, Arat. but if you step back and, and take a long view, having now participated in the industry for uh, almost three decades here, the the long view is is actually i would say a very encouraging one if you think about the the just the raw numbers india is today has a you know is a global hub undisputed leader for tech talent i think you know depending on the numbers you look at uh, india has uh, a tech pool that's somewhere in the range of 5 million people which you know if you if you look at the the world population of technology of software engineers you know india is about 20% of the global workforce that's a big that's a big number and a very impressive number and you know if you just look at the in the last year the last financial year i think indian it saw the highest ever net employee headcount addition some 450000 people if, if i remember right so you know that that's a 9% year over year growth in the workforce so in one way you know i think you can make the case that there's been tremendous progress uh, in the overall ecosystem, and of course, universities play a very important part in that that overall ecosystem, and so I would argue that it would be very hard to make the case that things were not working to deliver these kinds of results that I just talked about, you know twenty percent of the global workforce, ten percent year over year growth. But having said that, you know there's the there's always room to do much more because i I think It's also very clear that if the current trends continue under almost any circumstance, you're going to see that there's going to continue to be a supply-demand imbalance in the need for technology talent, at least for the next, you know, until 2030, and I would say even beyond the projections that that we have and recognize is that that there will continue to be a global software shortage of somewhere between four and five software engineers. By 2030 at the, at the current pace. So there's still a room to do a lot, a lot more. And universities are certainly part of that, that equation, rebuilding the or, or building and evolving the pool of people that can enter the the um, the industry. And I think that they're the, the opportunity to build much closer collaborations between industry and and academia, that, that continues to be a, a significant opportunity. But I think that the opportunity to really tap that Bharat, that is goes beyond the traditional model. You know, the traditional ideas of you know let's let's get some curricula into the universities in the last year and so on and so forth. I think we have to really start thinking about models like lifelong learning. I think we really have to start to question the idea of skills versus degrees. We, we are very focused on degrees right now in our academic frame. I think that the world over time is gonna to have to, in the technology space, is gonna to have to move towards a model that's different than the you know, sort of episodic one of, I get my degree you know, and then I go to work and then you know, I don't come back to academic learning for a long period of time, if at all. To one where we say let's let's focus on skills because you have to have a certain baseline foundation but then skills become important and skills are becoming obsolete much much faster than they've ever had, they have in the past and therefore you have to move to a some model of lifelong learning and today we really haven't figured out what's the great what's the answer to this lifelong learning model
0: it's interesting, actually, you touched upon my next question in, in the short term experience I had outside of journalism when I went away for a few years. I was actually part of your you know, very dynamic and very agile industry, software services. And one thought, I don't think it's become reality even now, six, seven years later, was to why, as to why the industry should allow folks to go through a graduation course, unlearn some, and then relearn some, just pick them straight off schools and say, you know, give uh, you far more valuable for the individual as well as for the companies. Of course, labor laws may need to change, but a bit of a radical thought. Do you think that's the way to go? Because if somebody is oriented towards coding, then the earlier he or she starts doing the serious thing in life, the better for the industry and the individual.
1: Yeah, I think that about some version of what you described, we will have to, I believe we're going to have to move to over, over time. I and I think that the model could well be a, a blended sort of learning working model. So for example, I could imagine somebody out of school, maybe doing an internship, spending a year or two in, in an organization, coming back to get some formal education for a year or two, coming back. So I think this it it has to wind up being a blended model. Because I think that all said and done, the Our current universities do provide us with important foundational knowledge that we carry with us through our career. And that foundational knowledge and that foundational capability, we don't want to lose. Uh, We want to impart that in an academic way to to students. At the same time, I saw an estimate, at least in the United States, that something like 40 or 50 percent of what we learn in university is obsolete by the time you graduate or five years later. So if if that's the case, then there's something fundamentally wrong. And even if that number is not entirely accurate, there is some number like that, which says that some portion of what we're teaching in universities is, is perishable because the world is changing as fast as it is. And we just have to acknowledge that and accept that, and then say, if a significant amount of what we're learning in universities is perishable, then how do we replenish that over time for the individual? So I, I really believe that going forward, this, this model of blended learning that we, in a really foundational way, is going to be necessary for, not just for the technology services industry, but I would argue for almost any profession
0: in the future. Yep, you can say that again, I guess. So, you know, you talked about, you know, earlier on in our conversation, companies that need to be innovative and creative in the way they retain talent, that can genuinely feel I'm being taken care of here, both my professional needs, my learning needs, and so on. So any you know kinds of companies or uh, names or any, any kinds of companies that focus on a particular niche seem to have got this better than the others, because I would imagine if I take technology services, the top five that actually contribute to getting talent in, in terms of net additions, those are the top five or top six that contribute significantly. I would imagine that it's difficult for their for their sizes for them to turn around and say, "You know, let me do this creatively. Probably would take some time, but any names or kinds of companies that you think are doing this right? You know Bharat, what I would say is I think that, as you know,
1: companies across the industry have very distinct cultures and I would go back to the the framework I laid out. You know, there's a lot of work that has been done on this idea of what motivates people. This idea of extrinsic motivators versus intrinsic motivators, and I I believe that the work, going back to what I said before, you know, given that the nature of work is changing, the work that we have to do in IT services is becoming much more creative, much more heuristic-based work you need people for that kind of work that are intrinsically motivated i would contend and intrinsically motivated people are not motivated solely or or maybe even primarily by external incentives like compensation they are motivated intrinsically by uh, by three or four things right i think they're motivated by autonomy the the belief, autonomy and empowerment the belief that they have the ability to to have Control over the outcome of the work that they're doing. Uh, they recognize that that doesn't necessarily mean complete. In a big organization, it, autonomy and empowerment doesn't mean con- complete control over all aspects. But they need to have enough that they believe that they have autonomy and empowerment. They need to believe that they, you know, on the on back to our conversation about mastery or or lifelong learning. They need to believe that they have. They're building a craft. They're building. A, uh, a sense of mastery of what they do, and that every day when they when they come to, to their to their work, that almost like a craftsman does, that they're getting better, that they're perfecting their craft, and so there's this idea of a sense of mastery, and then it's super important to have a sense of purpose, and so I would say that as I look across the industry, the top five, if you were to rank them on autonomy, mastery, and purpose, as the three key dimensions. Each one ha- has strengths and weaknesses, I would say on, on those three. And you know, just as, an, as, a, as a broad example, um, I think the Tata group in general has always had a broad sense of purpose and mission in the country. Right? From the very early days, Tata stood for an institution in, in, in the country that goes beyond the, the purpose of, or the or the profit motive of the individual organization. It goes beyond the individual in the organization. There's a deep sense of purpose that the Tata Group stands for in the country. So, you know, I think that, that that's an asset of, of the Tata Group. But equally, you know, I think the other firms have done great jobs on autonomy. I, I would say, you know, back to our conversation about lifelong learning, I'm, I'm not sure that anybody has yet quite figured out that aspect in, in great detail. And so to me, I actually believe that that's a real opportunity to gain competitive advantage in the industry. The, one, the firm that figures out how to really take care of people's lifelong learning, this idea of mastery, to have them come to work every morning and say, at this moment in time, I'm doing my best work. Um, and this is a firm that's going to make sure that over time, that is going to continue to be true. I think the firm that figures out how to do that at scale is is going to win in the decade going forward.
0: One more question on the, the attrition part of our conversation. So do you have a view as to when this cycle would end uh, going just by past experience? I know you said this was different, but, you know, maybe five, six quarters down the line, you sense that this will settle down or uh, where do you see this going? I know I'm asking you to look into a crystal ball.
1: Yeah, look, none of us have a crystal ball here, but here's what I would say. I, I, I think on this one, there's a there's a macro and then there's a micro as well, Harit. I think on the macro side, I don't think that the supply-demand imbalance abates for a long period of time. You know, as I said, I've, we've cut the numbers in in a number of different ways that recognize, and every, every way we look at it, there's going to continue to be a shortage of technology of software engineers until 2030. And even if industry productivity goes up, even if technologies like low-code, no-code make an impact on, on on the world, we still think that there's going to be a significant shortage of technology, software engineers. And by the way, you know, I'm using the term software engineers. It's probably not entirely accurate because, you know, today the technology industry requires many other skills like designers and data scientists and so on and so forth. But if you look at that entire pool, there's going to be a shortage until at least 2030. So, At the macro level, I don't see that going away. But I I do think that at the micro level, over the next 18 months or so, we'll start to see some cooling off because on the one side, the industry has inducted a lot of supply, new, new talent from universities over the last 12 months. So there's a lot of new talent that will come into the industry and that talent will become productive over the coming months. And so that should ease the, the, the supply demand, the supply side of the of the equation. Um, and then of course, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about the demand side as well, which is that, you know, we are headed into a period of, we're already in a period of, of economic volatility, uh, you know, we're in a period of high inflation, we're in a period where geopolitics are trickier than they've been at um, maybe at any other time, at least in my my working career. And so given those things, it's reasonable to expect that that will have some impact on demand. The question is, how big is that demand? I don't think the industry has seen that yet, at least not in any conversations that I've had. But I do think that, you know, we should expect that demand will cool a little bit as well over the next or four quarters.
0: Thank you so much, Frank. A real pleasure having you in our midst with us on this particular topic, which seems to touch so many lives. Really appreciate you being with us.